Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you find this sense of your natural goodness, when you, when you connect with pure awareness, when you connect with something larger than yourself, when you connect with your natural your birthright to belong, right? You actually don't have to determine whether you're good enough or not. You actually can step over that dilemma and recognize that actually you are both. You are both good enough and not good enough. You are both beautiful and unattractive. You are both, you are all of those things, right? That was Dr. Meg McKelvey on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Psychologists Off the Clock is supported by Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis Continuing Education, you can really transform your clients' lives. You can learn how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And it's really the premier provider of continuing education for clinical professionals. You can earn CEs if you're a psychologist, social worker, counselor, behavior analyst, MFT, physician, nurse, and more. And Praxis has both on-demand courses and live online courses. Right now, you can get ACT Immersion or ACT in Practice with Steve Hayes, as well as ACT One with Matt Boone and Focused ACT for Brief Interventions with Kirk Strosall and Patty Robinson. Those are the on-demand courses. And live self-care and radical healing among BIPOC therapists on the front lines, culturally tailored ACT, fundamentals of DBT, ACT in behavior analysis, superhero therapy, and more. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you'll get a coupon code for the live courses there. Check us out at offtheclockpsych.com. Hi, this is Debbie, and I'm here with Diana today to introduce an episode with our mutual dear friend, Dr. Meg McKelvey, who is talking to us today about belonging from both the outside in and the inside out. Um, Diana, what, what are your thoughts about the episode today? Well, I'm completely biased, but I am in love with this episode, Debbie. And I feel like sort of this airplane that we've been, you know, this is our 199th episode, five, almost five years of doing the podcast. And the seeds of this podcast really began with, with Meg. And having her come on feels really auspicious and perfect. And it's like we've been circling around this concept of belonging, like an airplane circling. And I feel like Meg just landed it. <laughs> like she landed the plane with her wisdom and the integration of uh, embodiment and uh, contemplative wisdom, her own life experience. And, uh, and then also just the sweetness of the two of you as friends talking about belonging. And this topic for me is a really sore spot. It's one of the places that I struggle with. And I think many of our listeners that will listen and many of our clients that we work with also find it as a sore spot. So there's often for many of us, this universal feeling of not belonging. And I really appreciated what Meg had to say about that. I agree. I, we've been talking about having Meg on for forever. We both have. And so it's really delightful to have her here. And I think that this is such a human universal thing that I think we can all, if we really dig deep enough, contact times in our life when we felt a lack of belonging or we've struggled with belonging and just how very painful that is. And so I love that she's naming it and putting it out there in this way because it helps. I think it really just helps people to be aware of it. And I think what's interesting is that from my own self-study and also working with clients, what I've noticed is that when we don't feel like we belong, we can often engage in behaviors that lead us to feel less like we belong, which is really, you know, it's really interesting whether it's, um, as Meg talked about, sort of with competition, like how she withdraws or how people can withdraw from competition. But also it can be, at least for me, it can be going into striving mode or doing more to try and belong. And sometimes that can be really off-putting for people. It's almost like an experiential avoidance that when that belonging, as Meg describes that hunger that will show up across our lifespan over and over again, that hunger to belong shows up. Sometimes we engage in patterns of avoidance that 
exacerbate it and make it a lot worse. Right. They backfire. We're really attempting to either seek belonging or to fill that void, but the things we do make it worse. I just made a quick list of a few of the things that I see, I think, especially in my clinical work, you know, sometimes people, they get, they seek reassurance, they get a little needy, they might get defensive or blaming or really people pleasing. They might even just isolate or start arguing or using sarcasm. I mean, there's so many different versions of this. And I think those are just a few that came to mind. But, you know, listeners, we could probably all think about, you know, when I'm feeling that yearning to belong, when I'm feeling like I'm disconnected, you know, do I ever get into some patterns that are less helpful? Because certainly I'm sure we all do from time to time. You know, was it, I just, it reminds me actually of something, Diana, that you wrote in our book about a sea urchin who can be a little prickly on the outside, but then there's some tender spot on the inside. Yeah. And the sea anemones that when they get, they're tender on the outside and when they get poked, they close up to protect their tenderness. And I think those are the ways in which we often respond. We either get prickly or we close up because there is something, there's something tender and vulnerable inside of all of us. And um, ultimately belonging is, is wearing that tenderness on the outside without right, closing up. Tenderness on the outside, acknowledging that tenderness and, and also letting other people get past the prickles a little bit. One of the things that I really appreciated Meg talking about is sort of this sometimes factor that sometimes we aren't so easy to love or sometimes we aren't so likable and that that actually isn't what belonging is about, that belonging is a, a bigger stance of making space for all of you and accepting really in an embodied way just who you are at a core level and how she traces that back to even just when we are, when we're babies and when we're born, that's there. My uh, partner will often say that every puppy is cute, but not every newborn is cute. <laughs> but to the mother, I think every newborn is divine and being able to turn towards ourselves with those same eyes that even when we're not being so cute or our lives don't look so cute, that, that we can turn towards ourselves with a, a feeling of, of you belong. For both Debbie and I, this episode is a personal one because Meg has had such a big influence on our lives on this podcast, the sort of behind the scenes of a lot of the ideas that we percolate. And we're just really excited to share it with all of you and, and share her teachings. Yeah. And I'd like to just add really quickly that Meg and I will be doing an experiential workshop together on belonging from the inside out at the ACBS conference, June 24th through 27th. It's virtual. It's a big ACT conference for mental health professionals. So if you're planning to be at the conference, we'd love to see you at our workshop. And also anyone who's listening can find some resources, including a meditation by Meg and some information about her writing groups at her website, which is drmegmckelvey.com. Dr. Meg McKelvey is a therapist, consultant, and trainer specializing in acceptance and commitment therapy and a co-founder of Impact Psychology Colorado. She earned her PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Prior to her work in private practice, she was a psychologist in the family program at the Rocky Mountain VA Medical Center, and she served as a nationally recognized trainer and consultant in cognitive processing therapy for trauma in the VA healthcare system. 
She's currently a trainer and consultant for MEND and a founding member of MEND Allies. She's committed to increasing social justice in the field of mental health and passionate about using writing as a tool to evoke ACT processes. Meg is also my colleague and a very, very dear friend of mine. And I have to say to start the conversation that some of the conversations I've had with Meg over the years have really changed my life. And I'm so happy to have Meg come on the podcast. Finally, Meg, we've been talking about doing this for a long time. Welcome. (laughs) Yes, we have. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here because I think what we wanted to do was share some of these conversations and ideas with others. I just wanted to say that for me, the challenge as we were preparing for today was to think, how do I distill, you know, some of these words of wisdom from Meg and some of these really powerful nuggets of ideas that we've had together and that we've shared into something that's coherent for other people to listen to. Yes, it's the truly the psychologist off the clock. We are truly the psychologist off the clock. <laughs> These are our conversations. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and they, you know, you're the common link between me and Diana Hill and Ray Littlewood who got this off the ground in the first place and I think that, you know, this true in many ways this podcast was truly inspired by some of the conversations we've had. So, deep gratitude to you, Meg. I'm really happy to have you here to share some of your ideas. Thank you. Thank you. Well, just also say that these conversations have been life-changing for me too. And that there's, that are, that some of what is so beautiful about our relationship and our conversations is that there's so much similarity, but there's also a real yin and yang between the two of us that is really um, juicy. Well, and I think we wanted to make it clear that we are, both a work in progress and that we bring some of our words of wisdom here with some humility. So, so yeah, I mean, we're going to be talking about belonging and um, I just really like to make it clear that, that, that this is all in process. This is all sort of this stuff that I have learned and I am humbly bringing it, um, and with the hope that other people can benefit. And it's, you know, it's, it's so many things that I've learned from so many different teachers and, um, I have so much gratitude for the teachers in my life, Dr. Robert Unger and, um, Aneta Knopp, um, two of my most dear teachers and many, many others. Um, and so this is really a um, humble process of just sharing some of this stuff that I'm excited about. We're framing the conversation around belonging, and this is something that I think is essential to us as humans. In fact, Steve Hayes, who is one of the co-founders of ACT, in his book, A Liberated Mind, he uses the phrase that belonging is a birthright. And Meg, I was just wondering, could you start us off by telling us what is belonging and why is it so crucial to us humans? Yes. Um, so after I read Steve Hayes' book, I became sort of obsessed with belonging. There's a chapter in his book about it and the yearning to belong. And um, so belonging is really to be seen, known, and loved. And the part that I want to add to that is also that it's often a wordless experience. It's not necessarily um, just a cognitive experience. Um, 
so the way that I think about belonging um, is that it's that moment when a child is born and it's held to the breath to the mother's breast. Um, that's sort of how I think about as there's no greater belonging than that when then we when we come into the world and when we come out of the womb. Um, because we're born and we don't yet know our separateness. We don't yet have the cognitive capacity to know that we are actually separate from our mother or our parent. Um, and in that moment, we are loved and we belong. And it doesn't matter um, if we're smart or beautiful or special in any way, um, we belong. And my hope is that we help people to find find their way back to this experience, this experience of belonging again as adults, um, sort of helping people find their way home because belonging is already here. Um, and actually there's a, there's a quote um, that I love by John O'Donohue, who was a um, beautiful Irish poet and he says, uh, perhaps your hunger to belong is always active and intense because you belonged so totally before you came here. This hunger to belong is the echo and reverberation of your invisible heritage. You are from somewhere else You were where you were known, embraced, and sheltered. So we all deserve love and belonging. It doesn't matter. Uh, sort of our achievements or our characteristics. And that's what I, I want to help people turn back towards. And, um, and it actually, you know, it, it really relates to this ju social justice piece. Do you want to tell us more about that, Meg? What's the relationship there? Yeah. So, um, one of the first barriers to belonging, and we'll talk more about some of the barriers to belonging, but one of the first barriers to belonging is outside of ourselves. Um, you know, this issue that has become so deeply exposed in this last year is this pandemic of racism in addition to the pandemic of COVID. And um, things like racism and really othering, which is like a prejudice where um, based on somebody's group, um, there's this oppression. How do people who are experiencing direct oppression, how are people who are people of color who are witnessing the the neck on the knee of George Floyd, how are they experiencing belonging in this culture? And I think that that was really the inspiration of you know this this sort of obsession I have with um, this the learning about this yearning to belong, you know, seeing that and just like having this moment of just true horror around how that impacts people's belong sense of belonging. So, um, and when, you know, it, it, it's this, you know, I think that when George Floyd called out to his mother, it, it sort of called upon all the mothers of the world. And I think that that it really brings to this question of like, how can people of color feel their belonging in this profoundly race, racist culture? Um, and so I, I really think that, that this is where I started to understand that my 
calling to to do this belonging work also has a social justice element to it. It's not just in the therapy room. It's not just in in my friends. It's not just you know. It's it's all of that together. And because if other people can't feel belonging, then we, you know we're so interconnected. We've we've seen that in the pandemic, right? We are really getting clear how interconnected we are with this pandemic, and so. If others can't feel belonging, then none of us can. And so there's just this sense of urgency in this work that, you know, as a longtime meditator and, you know, there's this sort of dialogue in that community of, you know, you do this work on your, on yourself and then the, the effects will ripple out. And, and I think that there's many people um, you know, I've been inspired by many teachers around this about how to integrate social justice with, um, with our own, with our own work, our own journey. I think there's a real, there's something really powerful in what you said about how interconnected we are, that we are truly an ultra social species. This is a thing in, you know, biology where certain species of animals like bees depend on each other in really complex ways. And I think humans are like this. And this yearning to belong is more is more than just about ourselves, right? It's not just about our own problems. And I think sometimes in Western psychology, we focus so much on our own selves. Yeah, it, exactly. Um, right. Like that sort of the, like our evolutionary history we were designed to live in groups and tribes and, you know, that these, the, the yearning to belong that is, is, is so much a part of our evolution and that we don't, we don't want to stifle that or push that away. Like that it is actually part of our evolution because we are going to survive better when we are in groups. And um, so how do we, how do we work with our, this yearning? How do we understand this yearning to belong? How do we work with it? How do we channel it? How do we work with some of the ways that it shows up? We sort of mismanage our yearning to belong. I think Steve Hayes calls it the yearning to belong. And John O'Donohue that you quoted earlier calls it the hunger to belong. And to me, that implies that sometimes people really want that sense of belonging, but there there's something missing there's something there's something that gets in the way. What what are your thoughts about what can get in the way of feeling a sense of belonging? So I think like the at the most the most basic thing for all of us is getting caught in our self stories. Um, so getting caught in stories like I'm not good enough, I don't matter, I'm not smart enough. Um, you know, I think that that's sort of a place that I like to start in in thinking about where we get stuck. Um, and then I think at a most basic level, we get really disconnected with our own natural goodness. And the way that we get disconnected is we, we get sort of seduced by our doing mind. We just, we live, we are sort of living like you know, I think uh, John Kabat-Zinn says we're human doings rather than human beings, and we, you know, we all know the feeling of just that sense of living life in a checklist of like checking off things that we need to do, 
And we can lose sight of slowing down, contacting our bodies, and connecting with, you know, really this sense of our natural goodness. And um, in ACT terms, self as context. Yeah. Let me read a quote from a liberated mind, if that's okay, that I think really captures this. This is part of that chapter you said that you got obsessed with because it's so good. Oh, Steve Hayes, who, by the way, has been on the podcast to talk about the book about a liberated mind. Steve Hayes, Hayes writes, human beings yearn to be seen, cared for, and included as members of the group. We are social primates. We evolved in small bands and groups where belonging was literally a matter of life or death. While this yearning is healthy, many of the ways our minds try to satisfy it cause us psychic pain. We lie about ourselves to defend our ego. We play the victim. We berate ourselves for failing to meet inflated standards that might please others. And we become consumed by worries about rejection and perceived slights. You know, dots that have been connecting for me lately is just the sense that this is part of ACT and it's also tied to, you know, Eastern traditions and that kind of thing. And it's it's not new in psychology either, because I think it's really similar to some other constructs, like the idea of ego from more psychodynamic traditions. Like it's, it's in a lot of places, I think, if you look for it, but the sense that we trip ourselves up in our own minds in this way. Yes, exactly. And I think that's such an important part of this is that I'm not, you know, that there's so many wisdom traditions, there's so many um, people that have pointed to this. And, um, and so what we're talking about is not new. And I think that what happens is, is that this, that the doing mind turns on us, you know, the doing mind is like constantly scanning the environment and looking for danger, right? Looking for danger, looking for problems to be solved, right? We looking for things to put on our checklist (laughs) and, um, the doing mind then can turn on itself. It can turn, you know, we can become the problem to be solved. Right. And that, that takes us away from our deep natural goodness. And, um, you know, as Pema Chodron says, she says some quote, like something like, uh, the subtle aggression of self-improvement, right? That we're sort of in this, we're on this wheel of trying to improve ourselves and we're just moving and moving and moving and we're not slowing down and connecting with something larger than ourselves. We're not slowing down and connecting with our wordless experience. And so like an example of that is if I were, if if we were to sit with the question, what is here when there is no problem to be solved? And so, you you know, just that what happens when we drop the struggle, when we drop and trust. And I think that we have lost some of that when we sort of, when we stay hooked into the, the busyness, we lose some of that. It's hard to imagine it's such a foreign concept because I think we typically spend, at least I'll speak for myself here, right? I spend like 95% of my time in that doing busy problem-solving place. 
And it takes actual effort sometimes to slow down and drop out of that a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's true for all of us, right? Yeah. And that's why, you know, that's why I think that belonging and connection with something larger than ourselves is all the more important right now, right? It's for all of us. To be clear, I think what you're not talking about when you're talking about belonging is being liked or likability or, you know, it's not a popularity contest. How is belonging different from being liked in your view? So then this is where we get into sort of that. I think that that belonging, and this is why I sort of talk about belonging from the inside out, right? Like that belonging is an experience that we have internally. And it is, and sometimes it's actually not you know, sometimes our out external world is actually not changing when we do belonging work. So for example, I have a client that has given me permission to talk about this and I'll disguise as well. But, um, you know, I have a client who, who was dealing with cancer and so she was quarantined before COVID. Right. And so there was just a lot of isolation, a lot of, um, you know, just isolation. And, and, you know, once we have done some belonging work, which I can talk more about, her experience of her own belonging has changed, despite the fact that she is still continues to be isolated, sort of with COVID. And so I think being liked, you know, whether we're liked, is like, is passing experiences, it's, it's a weather system that moves in and out, but our sense of belonging, our connection with our own, with our own goodness that is, that is always here is always available to us. And, um, and so being liked is, is really just a weather system that comes in and out. And that if, if you are fully, if you've fully moved in to your true expression of, of who you are, you're not going to be liked by certain people, right? Like that that's part of what we can work to accept because it's, it's painful. Yeah. And I mean, on the other side of that, I think that you can be surrounded by people, right? You can have tons of social interaction and still not feel a sense of belonging if you're not truly authentically open and yourself in relationships, which we'll talk about more later. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So Meg, one of the things that we've talked about in some of our recent conversations is kind of this desire to be special and sort of the, the gifts of dropping that and being ordinary. Yeah. What do you think happens when people really have a strong drive to be special? Well, I think that this is sort of a mismanaged, you know, when, when our yearning to belong is really strong, it can become really mismanaged with, with trying to be special. You know, I think we can all fall into that in, in, at times in moments. And I think that being special and feeling special just does not get us where we, I mean, bottom line is it just doesn't get us where we want to go. And so lately, one of the things that I will do when I am sort of working with my own 
um, when I'm working to sort of see if something is what I want to do or am I called to do something or what matters to me or um, I'll really tune into my body and I'll ask myself, am I doing this because I want to be special or am I doing this because it matters to me? And it really, it really helps me kind of get clear about these, to get clear about, um, what, what, what I'm called to do and what I, what I need to be doing and how I want my life to be. This is one of the key things I've learned from you, Meg, that I apply in my life. I mean, imperfectly, but it's just the sense of slowing down. I think my natural tendency is to get excited about everything and also to get a little bit people pleasing and get in my own, you know, desire to be special and achieve things. And I've, I think at my best, I've borrowed this skill from you, which is to just sit with things and to, to ask myself hard questions like that. Like, is this a should, is this something I'm doing for the wrong reasons versus is this something truly meaningful that I care about? Yeah. And I think, I think that, um, we underestimate sort of the wisdom of the body. And I think that, um, that so much of when we tune into the body, we can tune into this natural intelligence that, that isn't, that is wordless and that can help guide us towards a life that is sort of most vital, most alive for us. And that when we get caught up in sort of the cognitive, you know, I, uh, one of the things that I do that I'll say to, to my clients, um, is that I actually do not believe in pros and cons lists. Um, not, I mean, you know, of course, there's always a place for them. And actually, I did one like recently, but I sort of have this irreverent stance that I don't, I don't do pros and cons lists. You know, if you come to me and you ask me, you know, should I have a second child, right? It's like that pros and cons list. I mean, you, it is like the most irrational decision to have a child, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it, it's not, uh, it's not a rational decision um, to have a first child, to have a second child, um, millions of dollars later, you know, and <laughs> lots of <laughs> love and heartache labor. Um, so, you know, it's really a question of tuning into our body, using that as like this uh, sort of tuning fork to help guide our, our lives. You know, I think that's right. Like a pros and cons list, it happens very much like up here in your head. And it's this back and forth and back and forth. And it's really hard to resolve something in that way. Yeah. And sometimes even it's like, like you said, there's min- there's a hundred rational reasons why to do or not do something. And it still may not be right for you. Yeah. And actually, that's exactly it. It's like the pros and cons list, when you do it, it comes out one way that more often than not, I find is the opposite way of what people's intuition is calling them to do, right? It just like their intuition wants them to do their, their body wants them to do something that is like irrational, maybe, but is really like, is really do, deeply rooted in their own wisdom. There is wisdom there. And so, um, so yeah, so pulling people out of that cognitive process that that cognitive like sort of arguing that we do with ourselves yeah what are the hidden gifts of being ordinary ah there there are many (laughs) but the biggest one I mean isn't it 
I don't know, Debbie, like, isn't it just love? Isn't it just like, isn't that the gift of the ordinary is that we drop into moments of love with the people that are most dear to us and that in the, that that's all that, that matters and that we have a moment to sit with other people who are suffering and, and give them love and care and, and receive that ourselves. I mean, it, it just feels so basic. Yeah, it kind of is when you boil it down. It's as simple as that. Yeah. It's having the room for what really matters. Yeah. Okay, so we have this yearning, this yearning for belonging, this deep need and desire for it. And we can trip ourselves up and get our own way with it. And Meg, you talk about belonging from the inside out and belonging from the outside in. Yes. As ways to kind of, you know foster belonging. So let's start with belonging from the inside out. Can you explain what you mean by this and how people can move toward it? Yes. So one of my favorite uh, quotes by Rumi is, um, your task is not to seek for love, but to break, to find and break all the barriers within yourself that, that you have built against it. Um, and so that's one of the ways that I think about belonging from the inside out. Belonging is truly already here. And so we are just returning to it. You know, it's that, that going back to the, to the baby and the baby is born, you know, the parent doesn't love the child more or less because the child is high achieving or good at sports. The baby, the child just is. And so you know, that that is the relationship that we are building with ourself, that we are that baby, we are that, that beautiful, untouched, perfectness. And we are, we are rediscovering that for ourselves, and that there are some practices that we can use to help us re-remember to help us come home to that. I think one thing that's really important to acknowledge about that is that you don't have to wait for the conditions in your life to change, to practice what you're about to share. Because I think sometimes it's almost like this external focus, like, well, once I have this, once I've accomplished that, once I am with this right group of people, once I have this in my life, then I can get there. But it's not like that with what you're talking about. Yes, exactly. And actually, um, that makes me think a lot about that one of the one of the roads to belonging, believe it or not, is actually suffering. It's suffering and joy. It's it's beauty and pain. And I, you know, this is that's what act is all about, right? But that our the threads of our suffering connect with the threads of all people's suffering, right? And without suffering, we don't have those threads of belonging to a, to a, a group that has pain. And the suffering actually brings us deep humility. I mean, I can speak about that very, very personally, you know, like that, that, that when we are going through long periods of time where we don't suffer, you know, the first thing I notice when I, when I have a period like that, and then I have something really painful happen 
or I experience something painful is that it, it is so humbling. And, and in that we connect to, you know, our, our deep humanity and the humanity of others. And, and so that is part of belonging. Um, and go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we have so much to say. This yeah. is us, right? Um, well, I just think about that with the past year plus with the pandemic and how, you know, I, again, I, I don't believe in sugarcoating what we've been through. It's been awful and tra- traumatic in so many ways. I do think, though, there's a certain like realness that has come out of it that is tied to common humanity, that we're all going through something hard together. And I've seen a level of openness, whether it's your, you know, child strolling half naked through your Zoom call, or whether it's just acknowledging how hard it's been. I think it has the common suffering that people have experienced has created the sense of we're not alone, which I think sometimes we deny. Yeah, I think that's such a huge and beautiful thing thing about this pandemic, um, in, in, in the midst of all that suffering is, is that, um, that, that it's almost like that our, you know, we all suffer separately in different ways. Right. And there's still that in the pandemic, not everyone's in the same boat, all of that. But then there was something that happened where there's like this, this, the collective suffering, like at the same time, like the, you know, with the rhythm of our, challenges and pain, right? Like that we all have different rhythms with that. But then sort of like this coalescing of like the rhythm of our suffering being there's some togetherness in that, you know, we sort of the ups and downs of, um, you know, the, the incredible challenges with racial injustices, the, the incredible challenges with the election and the, um, gaslighting of of our country you know that there is there's just these ways that we're sort of riding some of these waves together and some of our waves are separate some of you know some of our suffering is separate but I, I kind of wonder how that will impact our the people that have been through this as we move forward Pema Chodron says pain is not punishment pleasure is not reward and it's like we often have this sort of distorted relationship with pain that there's something that we've done to deserve it. And so then therefore we feel bad about ourselves and like having this all together has sort of normalized in some ways, some of our pain. Um, yeah. Yeah. Psychologist Off the Clock is so happy to share with you some upcoming good things with Rick Hansen. He's offering you a 50% off discount on his Neurodharma online program. This program will guide you through seven practices for revealing the natural goodness in each of us. And if you sign up by May 29th, you'll get a coupon code for 50% off. Go to offtheclockpsych.com for that program. So there's a number of ways that people can shift into that that sense of belonging from the inside out. Let's talk about some some examples of how we've experienced that. Yes. Um so I mean the biggest first piece is just to really recognize that the hunger to belong is always active. Like it's always a it's always there. It's not an issue that is resolved. This is not something that I have, you know, checked off a box and have re- have resolved. Like it's a <laughs> done. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. No, Like it's, it's a process that, that I'm always 
tuning into, I'm always working with, I'm always working on and attending to. And, and that it's like a form of self-care is like, where is my belonging? Where, you know, how is that feeling? And I think, you know, the, the most profound piece about this for me has been just that it is a, it is an inside job. It is a experience. It is something that I can work on by myself and that there's also belonging from the outside in, but that, but belonging from the inside out is something that I can really attune to for myself. So can you share for us like your own, some of your own personal story about your process of stepping out of story and, and finding a greater sense of belonging from the inside out? Yes. Um, so I think the way that I think about it is that I have some self stories like the rest of everybody, right? Like not good enough or, or, or whatever. And I think so for so long, it was a cognitive debate, right? It was like, does this thing make me not good enough? Or does that thing make me now good enough? And um, I think one of the things with the belonging work that I've been doing is that the work is really that you actually don't even have to engage in that conversation. That when you find this sense of your natural goodness, when you, when you connect with pure awareness, when you connect with something larger than yourself, when you connect with your natural, your birthright to belong, right? You actually don't have to determine whether you're good enough or not. You actually can step over that dilemma and recognize that actually you are both. You are both good enough and not good enough. You are both beautiful and unattractive. You are both you are all of those things, right? You are smart. And then you have these moments of just total dull dumbness or whatever, you know, like (laughs) that we are in fact, all of those things. And we don't have to argue about that anymore. We can step over it. You know, I I see this, I think as a therapist a lot, right? People are seeking an answer to that question. Am I good enough? And they can go back and forth all day in therapy and in their lives and can look for reassurance, can look for feeling good, compliments. And it doesn't, the, the truth is that it doesn't really typically get people anywhere. It just keeps them stuck in that debate. And you're talking about just putting that debate aside and not getting stuck there. And yeah, exactly. And I think that this like, you know, and, and I love Jill Stoddard's work on uh, imposter syndrome. Like you, we can feel the imposter syndrome and we can keep moving. And I think that that is one of the things that I have learned most from you, Debbie, is, is this sense of that you can just keep moving, you know, like, and, and we don't have to, you know, am I perfect or am I imperfect? Well, you're both, right? I and mean, we just keep moving. Like it's, it's really just becomes almost like a non-issue. It's like I am, you know, or like parenting, right? Like, am I a good parent or am I a bad parent? Well, actually you truly are both, right? Like there are moments where you're not a great parent, 
I'm speaking of myself, you know, and your moments where <laughs> and myself, yeah, where yeah. you are, you know, it's like you're just like this deeply wonderful being as a parent, right? And but it's so it's like dropping the struggle that 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 could possibly be true that I could possibly be like a not so great parent. It's like I'm, you just dropping the struggle of that. You know, I'll just share about our friendship because you mentioned earlier we sort of counterbalance each other that you know, you have provided me that gift of learning to slow down and tune in more. And I've provided you with sometimes a little nudge to not overthink it and to do, right? I mean, I think that's what you're talking about. Yes. And I think that that, that this is where relationships, where we find people that really get us and really see us and really accept us. And that there's something really beautiful that comes out of that, that there's this yin and yang between the two of us, this, these differences that, that, that are so, that we so appreciate about each other and we sort of push each other in different ways. And yeah, it's, it's priceless. So I think when we're talking about, about belonging, it's important to note that there's, it's not the same thing as self-acceptance, which is another term you hear a lot, right? Um, what's the difference, Meg? So the difference between self-acceptance and belonging is is that uh, self-acceptance is really a cognitive bargaining strategy uh, where we're saying to ourselves something like, you know, I may be um, a little disorganized, but, I, but, you know, I'm really compassionate or something like that, where we're sort of like weighing out the pros and cons of our <laughs> personality or whatever. And um, belonging is just that I am and that I am part of bigger than my, something bigger than myself and that I belong because I'm alive. I am alive and I am breathing and I belong. And it, it's a different kind of compassion that is not cognitive. It's embodied. It's just, it, it, it's like, it doesn't matter whether I'm, this or that. It doesn't, none of that matters in this space of belonging. Meg, I've loved hearing your thoughts about jealousy and and competition. Tell us about that. So jealousy and competition, I think just so much get a bad rap in our culture. And, um, in, you know, in particular, we really push away jealousy and competition. We really are averse to it. We have a lot of aversion when jealousy shows up for us. Um, we have a lot of aversion when competition shows up in relationships. And um, jealousy is such a beautiful guide for us, right? That, you know, if we see something that someone is doing and we find ourselves feeling jealous, what a beautiful moment for us to stop and look at what it is that get, is getting a vote for us. Are we, um, is there something that really matters to us that this other person is doing? Are we wanting to move towards something? You know, how can it help us clarify our values? Um, and so it's really this true welcoming stance, like, you know, using this as data, as information, as, something that helps guide our life. Like jealousy is actually something that guides my life. Um, and then, and competition is actually like particularly important for belonging because I think 
that they're both particularly important for belonging because I, I think that when we're willing to accept and acknowledge that these things exist and that they are in our relationships, there's so much we can learn from it. And I think one of the, one of the things that happened for me was in um, learning more about competition and relationships, it has helped me understand some of my own you know, struggles with competition that, that I can remember early on in my life, sort of not wanting to compete, not wanting to compete with other people and how, and how that, that really took me away from, uh, some of the things that really mattered to me. And it really took me away from playing bigger in a way, um, so as not to sort of evoke something that is just a natural part of life. Yeah, it can sort of go either way, right? You can hide or step out of competition in that way by not stepping forward. And you can also step the other way, right? Jealousy shows up or competition shows up and you bend over backwards trying to win. Exactly, right? And so there, it's like those are examples of really sort of mismanaged yearning to belong, right? Like that we can you know, when, with competition, it can become that we, when others sort of do something then we, that, that we admire or think is great, then we can, like a sense of shame can be arise for us. And then in order to manage that shame, we may feel like we have to do that thing ourselves, even though it's not in our body truly what we're longing to do, but we're just really trying to manage the shame that comes up when other people are achieving things. So, you know, I think belonging, I just want to be clear is, is, um, you know, the hunger to belong is always active. It's always here. It's never something that is resolved. It's a process that continues to unfold, right? Because we're always sort of in that process of needing to be and wanting to be connected to others and of connecting to our own natural goodness. So belonging is always here it's already here. And, and there are so many pointers to help us uh, re-remember our belonging. And a lot of the work is, is, as you know we've talked about, is really from the inside out. And so a lot of these pointers are things that many of our folks already are really familiar with. Um, so slowing down, um, connecting in nature, meditation and mindfulness, um, therapy, and self-reflection and body-centered practices, um, unplugging in for periods of time for a day-long retreat or week-long retreat, if that's possible. And then um, one of the things that I found most useful that I've been doing in my practice um, is, is free writing. And that's maybe something um, that we could talk about that is not necessarily as, as well-known uh, in terms of belonging work. I'd love to hear, Meg, about your experience using expressive writing and how that's helpful. I think expressive writing is really fascinating to me because this is a, it's been around for a while. Like James Pennebaker did the some of the initial research on one type of expressive writing way back, like I think in the 80s. And it is robust. I mean, there is evidence base behind using expressive writing to process emotions. Um, but I think Meg, you use expressive writing in a very particular way. Okay. 
So um, writing in groups, doing expressive writing in groups is can be a really powerful way to do belonging work. It's such a great way to connect with our observer self and our natural intelligence and like a different way into perspective taking. Um, you know, we do a lot of perspective taking and act and, and what can show up when we really put pen to paper and just write whatever is here can be so much with regard to shifting in perspective and so much with regard to tapping into our own natural goodness. And, um, you know, poetry also just, um, for many folks, is just such a wonderful way to connect the threads of our humanity, right? Like when we read a Rumi poem and we read, we deeply connect with the experience of a 13th century Persian poet, like that, that right there is belonging. Um, so we start there and use poetry to evoke belonging and we get to connect the, the threads of our shared humanity and, and really see what is here for us and engage some of the act processes through that process. So give, give us an example, Meg, of how it does connect to those act processes. So I think one of the, the, my most favorite pieces of doing the writing work is how we can really connect to this sense that we are bigger than our mind or experiences and connect with really connect in a different way with our observer self as we write. You know, I think that one of the things that I've found is that in doing so much act work, it's such a great way to have sort of a different route, a different door towards some of the same things that we've been doing in therapy and with ourselves for, for a long time. I love that. It's like a lot of the same processes, but they're coming to life through writing and particularly writing in groups. Yes. Yeah. And, and actually one of the really interesting things about the groups, it's like, this is what's so beautiful about this writing group is like, it's like you're in your own process and you're being witnessed. You're not sort of your worthiness and your writing is not being evaluated. It's just, you're being witnessed. And that is where the belonging is. You don't need someone to like relate with you in the perfect way to feel belonging. You have it here. This is the best segue because I think that let's, let's turn it now to look at the other piece of this, which is belonging from the outside in, right? And belonging, happening in relationship with other people. And, you know, again, we're these social creatures and meaningful connection really being seen by other people is another key piece of this. And, you know, we've talked about our friendship and how we have, have experienced this with each other and with other friends that we have in common. And can I read another quote, Meg, from Steve Hayes from yes. Liberated Mind? So he has um, one example of a way to to move toward that yearning for belonging is, and he calls it one truthful conversation at a time. Okay. Another good way to begin to let go of self-story is to practice being yourself more fully and openly with another person. The point is not that we must strive to always be absolutely honest the point is to open the door to places that are hard, insecurity, inadequacy, fear of rejection, and so on, and to learn what is fearsome about them. 
carving out more space for you to be you with those feelings more genuinely connected to others, one truthful conversation at a time. Mm. Yes. I think one of the things that in terms of belonging from the outside in, I think one of the things that I have that I feel is like one of the biggest gifts of our relationship is that um, I think that belonging is it's there's a little bit of belonging from the inside out and the outside in at the same time. But I think part of what we can do is we we carry the people that love us with us. And so we are not alone. And and that I just, you know, it sounds maybe like cliche or something like that, but it's really like this process of holding other people in mind and like savoring the love that we have with other people. And I'm just thinking of this experience recently that of with you of being on a patio to our dear friend, Alexis's patio together. And we sat down and the first thing that you said was something like, okay, tell me all the deep thoughts you all have been having. Like, tell me what's going on. Like, let's really get into it. And I just had this moment of like total bliss of like, these are my people. And, and so to be able to like carry that with you. Yeah, that's where these, I was trying to cut to the chase. And I said that because I do think, you know, when you, when you find your people, when you find people that where you're willing to have the courage to just open up and go to those hard places. I think something really powerful happens. And we didn't want to delay. We were just going to have those conversations, like the hard stuff, the, this is really who I am. This is what I'm struggling with. This is it. This is where my joy is. Like, it it was like, we were not going to delay. You know, I'm just thinking for, for people listening, you know, we have a foundation, right? It's not like, we did this as perfect strangers. Like we've known each other for years and we've over the years opened up in ways that got us there. But I I think this is important because what it took to get us there beyond regular kind of superficial conversations was just that willingness to be vulnerable, to open, to, to let ourselves be seen. And then that's received in a particular way. I think in a compassionate open, reciprocal, non-judgmental kind of way. And that's over time, the process of that happening. Yeah. And actually what's really interesting is that I think one of the most priceless things about our relationship is that we actually are able to talk openly about jealousy and competition yeah. between us. Yeah. And we have recently. Yes. Yeah. And like the, ah, like what an incredible gift that is. But I think what I would say just to, to, you know, I, I have this memory of having a really hard conversation um, where I had said, you know, I was, I was bummed out that I didn't get invited to do something. And it was a really hard conversation to bring up. And the way yeah. that you held that, I mean, this is, oh gosh, 12 years ago or, you know, whatever. And like, I'll never forget that. Like, and that, that, the, 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 the struggle, the, the challenges, like that's where relationships are born and, um, and talking about the hard stuff, right. Talking about jealousy and competition, talking about the things that give us challenges. 
You know, I think I remember that too. I actually hadn't thought about that in years, but you know, I think that you actually held my feet to the fire a little bit with that. And it was uncomfortable because I think that, you know, you want your friends, you want it to be easy and likable and all that kind of stuff. And I think that it did having conversations like that, not just that one, but over the years helped us move to that deeper place to know that our friendship can hold that. Yes. So I think it's important to clarify here that when we're talking about this, um, you know, yearning to belong through groups and social interactions, we're not, it's different from loneliness, but it's related. So how are, how do you think about loneliness related to belonging? So um, loneliness is something that is important to really assess in ourselves and others. Like the question is, you know, with a client or ourselves, is it, are we dealing with objective isolation or are we feeling alone or lonely in the midst of other people? Right. And so, you know, both are really important to address. And I think both would lend itself beautifully to belonging work, but really knowing what we're dealing with, you know, that experience of feeling lonely, even when we're in groups is such a common experience of suffering among many people. And, um, you know, doing, um, looking at helpful, unhelpful self stories and doing pure awareness work, um, would be really helpful for someone who is experiencing sort of more loneliness in the, in the presence of other people and, you know, more behavioral work, more behavioral interventions might be really helpful with someone who is experiencing objective isolation. But I think, you know, you and I were talking about the other day, a client where you were saying, you know, maybe I should have done it in reverse order. And I, and I think, I think that, um, that we, we tend to want to fix things in the world and fix things behaviorally. But what I would suggest is that we, that starting with the belonging work, whether or not there is isolation or there is loneliness is really, um, can be really helpful because once you do some of that work, some of the interpersonal concerns can fall away. Some of the inner, you know, we all have behaviors that we engage in when we're not feeling our best selves, when we're not feeling our connection to others, right? We all have that experience. And when we really do that deep belonging work, a lot of those behaviors can fall away. You know, I think it's really, therapists always say that therapy is like this sort of microcosm, like there's a relationship happening and it's a chance to evoke things and try things out. And I think for me, sometimes I've noticed, I think I do jump the gun sometimes as a therapist, like I can see maybe say an interpersonal issue that's getting in the way or a behavior pattern. And there is that like, oh, I see it. Let's kind of get in there and fix it. But I think if you do that, I've had it backfire if I do it too soon where the belonging context isn't established first, where it just comes across as like a criticism or like it's actually the the anti-belonging, right? It's like, oh, do this. You know, why don't you try this behavior? Get out there socially, you know, try a new thing with a relationship. But it's like the context matters. And, and I think what you're saying is like maybe the belonging is most important. And that can actually be something that can help with some of these other processes as well. Right. Exactly. Like that we can become caught as therapists 
or with ourselves, we can get caught up in the self as content, right? We're like inside of the self as content with the person, you know, we're, we're not connected to something larger. And we, and, you know, it's like that, you know, the client becomes a problem to be solved, a math problem rather than a sunset. Yeah. Well, let's end on this question for today, Meg. Um, I One of the many gifts of Meg and having Meg as a friend in your life is that I feel like you're really good at building those deeper, closer relationships. You know, like I said, you kind of pushed me in some new ways in our relationship. And I, I've seen you also create some really meaningful gatherings of people. For people who are out there who are looking for these kinds of connections and who want to foster belonging from the outside in, what suggestions do you have? Well, I think that the, um, one of the most immediate suggestions is the book, The Art of Gathering. I think you've had, um, you did a podcast on that. I would recommend listening yeah, to that. Yeah, we've talked about it. Yeah. yeah. I think that that is really powerful stuff is really creating gatherings for people sort of centered around some kind of um, connected activity or something that matters to people together. And, um, but most of all, you know, what I really come back to as I, you know, think about this is working with self stories that get in the way of even reaching out to create those gatherings, right? If that is what you are longing for, if you are longing to be connected to others and be in groups, like what is getting in the way of you joining Toastmasters? What is getting in the way of you having that writing gathering of you, um, you know, creating that dinner club or, or, um, you know, that wine tasting club, like what, what are the barriers to, you know, is there belonging work that you can do for yourself that will help you then tune into your body, get a sense as to what you're really longing for, and then be more able to step around those stories so that you can create what it is that you're longing for. Well, and I think too, what's getting in the way of sharing yourself fully, you know, one truthful conversation at a time, what's holding you up from, from moving into those more vulnerable places with the people, maybe even the people you already have in your life. And and is there a way to dig deeper? Yes. Like, it's like, I, you know, said to someone recently, like, oh, I just want, like the world needs you out there. You are, you know, it's like they, the world needs each of us. We have so much to offer. And can we accept that there's a lot that we bring to the table? Well, that's a, I think that's a lovely note to wrap up on. And can, can, let me ask you if you could share a poem that you brought to, as our final, our final moment here. Yes. This is a poem that gives that, that I, every time I read it, I feel belonging. When I am among the trees by Mary Oliver. When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locust, equally the beech, the oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world, but walk slowly and bow often. Around me, the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches, and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into this world to go easy, to be filled with light, and to shine. That's beautiful. 
Thank you, Meg. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.